0: I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. I pray that that would be your testimony. And your testimony would be that it is enough that Jesus has died on the cross, that His, his atonement covers our sin. Covers your sin. Well, we're gonna. Well, welcome, by the way, to Grace Bible Church. Welcome this morning, and I'm just so thankful that you're here. I'm Thankful that you were able to join us this morning, the gathering at such a special time uh, to be here as we uh, come together to worship the Lord. I know for me, as I go through my week, I, the batteries sort of go down, the spiritual batteries sort of uh, go start dying out, and I start struggling more and more, and when I come to be here as part of this gathering, I I get those uh, spiritual batteries uh, charged up as I'm around other believers. And I hope that you will uh, see the importance and understand the importance of gathering together as we praise the Lord, as we worship Him. Not only, you know, a lot of people think of worship as music, and, and, and I certainly appreciate uh, the, the ministry of music, especially what Phil has been able to do in leading us. Uh, at the same time, I know Phil would agree that worship is more than just singing songs. It's, uh, it's all about uh, worshiping the Lord. Is all about worshiping and how you live your life before Him. And it's an extension. What we do here really should be an extension of what you do in the rest of your life as you lead a life of worship, a life of sacrifice, before before our lord and savior jesus christ and so i just encourage you to understand that right now as a matter of fact just the act of sitting here under the word of god being preached and explained is a is an act of worship uh the act of we don't we don't talk about it as as often uh, very often but the act of giving the act of uh, giving your your financial means to the church to the lord is a act of worship and it's it's an act of, of worshiping him. Prayer and listening to the Word being being uh, read is an act of worship. So I just want you to in, to encourage you that everything that we do, everything we do in our lives, not only here but everything that we do, is an act of worship when you know and when you trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Well this morning we're con- going to continue. we're continuing our study in Ephesians. Uh, we have been and made our way uh from chapter one into chapter two uh we're now this sun or this sunday we're now on chapter two starting in verse eight by the way let I mean before i get started i just want to thank you guys especially for my week my my wife and i we went to kentucky uh we went to and visited the creation museum and also the ark encounter uh but more than that i mean we truly enjoyed those places and we we kind of did some other things around northern Kentucky and, and Ohio and, and just enjoyed and conversation together. Uh, that was probably the highlight of the trip was just t- the time spent, even t- the time in the car driving to these different places. I just want to thank you guys for let, allowing my wife and I to go and, and uh, be in there and not have to worry about and just, just focus on one another. It was such a wonderful time. And then last week, obviously, we had... Uh, Pastor Rag here. He did the Q and A on on uh, Sunday morning with the men, and uh, that was a wonderful time of encouragement to to be able to hear his heart for ministry, his heart for uh, church planting specifically. And so that was uh, I, I'm so thankful for that time with him. Uh, but it's at the same time it's very nice to be back in the pulpit, to be back here uh, and preach, to be able to preach the word of God to you guys. Well. As I said, we're continuing in our uh, series in Ephesians, and so this morning, this is the continuation of of what I've entitled, uh, verses 1 through 10, I've entitled it, uh, Trophies of Grace, Trophies of Grace. And I think, I hope, that as we've gone through this, um, as we've gone through this passage of Scripture, that you'll see that really and truly that we are trophies of grace, that that in verse 7, it says that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we will be a display of what Christ has accomplished in us as He saved us by His grace. And today we're going to see more about His grace and how we've been saved through faith. Let me read verses 1-10 through as we get started. I'll read verses 1-10 through 10 as we get the context of the passage. Paul writes in verse 1, "...and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind." and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you this morning again. I thank you, Lord, for bringing this, these people together. Lord, your people. We, I think of Martin Lloyd-Jones as he was contemplating ministry and whether or not he should leave the, the medical practice and go into to full-time ministry. I think about him leaving a theater and saying and seeing this Christian band on the side of the street. And he thought to himself, Lord, as you know, this is my people. These are the people I want to be with. And he gave up uh, the royal courts to to be with your people. Father, I want to be with your people, and I want to enjoy you for eternity. I pray, Lord, that we would all have that same anticipation for, for heaven, for spending eternity with you. In Christ's name, amen. faith the question is what what is faith one of the definitions found in miriam 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 webster states that faith is a firm belief in something for which there is no proof now i want you to hold on to that definition because i believe that this is absolutely true for the unbeliever but for the believer i don't think it's true I think that we have proof. We all have faith in something, right? Every person lives by faith. Just the act of waking up and getting out of bed takes faith. But there's so much that we can't... because there's so much that we can't see and understand. So much that we cannot prove, right? Every time we take a a bite of food or we drink uh, some water or we w- whatever it is that we consume, we believe, and we by faith believe that it's safe to consume it. But what's the proof? What's the proof that it is truly safe, right? Every time we drive our cars, we have faith that each bridge that we cross will, in fact, support us. I grew up on the winding roads of Arkansas, and I always wondered, as, we, as I topped the hill, you couldn't see on the other side, as a, as a young... Young boy, I always wondered if the road would end on the other side, right? I've been <laughs> I've been a structural engineer for 25 years, off and on for 25 years, and every hour of every day there are many people who have faith that I've done my job well, even though they don't know me and can't prove it, right? They're walking under a, jo- a building that I designed or walking on a floor that I designed. They're trusting that I was that I did my job, and that I was competent. They have faith, right? Every hour of every day. Just this week, I was sent a meme which depicted a man sitting in a stark, cold room warming his hands in front of a television screen with the image of a warm fire. The capture of the meme says this. Most people don't really want the truth. They just want constant reassurance that what they believe is the truth. Think about that. In other words, we all have a personal worldview. We all have a worldview which makes us, that helps us make sense of life. For the vast majority, it's enough. Now, I want you to understand this. For the vast majority, it is enough for someone to assure them that what they believe is true, whether or not that is the fact. Right? Whether or not it's true or not. In other words, misery loves company. Misery loves company. All is well as long as other people agree with me. As long as other people reassure me that what I believe is true. But beloved, that assurance is useless. Absolutely useless if what you believe is untrue. Just this past week, I was in a protracted protracted discussion with some folks on Facebook. I was all, along, all alone in, in this discussion against several folks on the other side of the discussion, and I was getting the distinct feeling that they were reassuring each other, as we were going back and forth, they were reassuring each other that they were correct in their view. They were even having side conversation, conversations, if you can imagine this, pointing out potential cracks in my logic, right? It was that they were even, at one point, they were even high fiving, you know, the digital high five, you know, likes and loves on the other person's comments as I was going back and forth. But that packed behavior didn't make them correct, right? The fact that there were other people that believed what they believed doesn't make them correct. The question, really, for us as Christians, is can we truly have assurance of faith can we truly believe or truly know that we what we believe is true because we can get into a room like this and we can have that same pack behavior right we can we can sort of kind of just kind of pump each other up and high five each other and talk about how much we believe and and you ought to believe too and uh, but that doesn't make what we believe true so the question is can we know for certain what we believe about the Bible, about salvation? is true. According to the writer of Hebrews, we can. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, <clears throat> the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. According, <coughs> according to the writer of Hebrews, We are given a conviction to believe even though we cannot see. We're given a a firm conviction that God will work all these things out for our good and His glory no matter what we see. We're given this assurance. This is a supernatural assurance. It doesn't come from us. We We don't just conjure it up, if you will. There was once a, a five-year-old girl named Jessica who became frightened as lightning. The lightning flashed and thunder cracked as she was stepping out of her bath. The lights began to flicker, and and she remembered that other times she was very young. At other times, the electricity had gone out, and they had to light candles. and It was very scary for her. Now she asked if she could sleep with her parents, and because of the of the uh, storm, and before she kissed her parents goodnight, Jessica prayed. The, this prayer. She says this Dear God, I hope it doesn't thunder and I hope the lights don't go out. But after a brief pause, she continued and she said this But I thought it over and you can do whatever you want to do. In Jesus' name, amen. In other words, this girl completely, in her world, in her situation, she completely surrendered herself to the will of God. This demonstrates the nature of true faith. It's a willingness to truly surrender all that we are, our hopes, our dreams, our families, everything that we have, to God who has demonstrated that He is sovereign over all of these things. But is there any way then, though, that we can have true assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen? In other words can we have a settled confidence that our faith is in fact genuine and that we're truly saved and further can we have a assurance a settled assurance of the effectiveness of the gospel despite great opposition you see we face great opposition whether we realize it or not i don't think it takes much to see if you read the current social media posts and you read the mainstream media, if you will. Uh, you, you don't, it doesn't take much to see that everything, most everything that we stand for as Christians is opposed by the, reg, the, the wider world, right? So can we have, can we have assurance? Here's the, here's the question. Can we have assurance if we simply believe what God says? Can we have assurance that, that things are going to go well, if you will? Well, I think that's what Paul really is saying here in these three verses. I think that's his point. I believe Paul is explaining two reasons why we can be confident in the gospel's effectiveness. That we can be confident that the gospel has truly, that God has truly transferred us from the realm of darkness to the, to the kingdom of light. That we truly are saved. And we truly can have a settled confidence about this. We can be confident because our faith has a supernatural origin. Our faith has a supernatural origin. And and secondly, our works are supernaturally produced. Now, this passage, Ephesians 2, 8-10, is familiar to many of us here. I've quoted it almost weekly over the past few years. Many times, the most familiar passages, though, are the most difficult to preach and teach because we already know what they mean. Everybody here that's heard this has already decided in their heart what this passage means. In this case, we quote this passage to prove sola fide, right? Which is Latin for justification by faith alone. I wholeheartedly believe that this passage teaches this doctrine and I use this verse over and over to show that salvation is by grace through faith and that salvation is by grace through faith which is a gift of God and not as a result of works so that no man may boast. I, I, I use this passage over and over for that. Our salvation is wholly a gift of God, the gift of God. We could never do anything to gain our salvation. Here at Grace Bible Church, we wholeheartedly affirm this truth. It's central to what we believe. That we don't do anything to gain salvation. But I fear, at times, that we see this passage through the eyes of the Reformation. You know what I'm saying, right? We see this, we see, uh, this through the eyes of Calvin, John Calvin, whom we, whom we hold up high. I've heard sermons preached on this passage that exegeted the Reformation more than the Scripture, actually. The Apostle Paul, what we have to remember is that the Apostle Paul and the church at Ephesus didn't know anything about the Reformation. The Reformation didn't happen for 1,500 years after the Apostle Paul, right? I had a discussion recently with a man about the teachings of Calvin and other Reformers, and he said, "...I have a hard time accepting the doctrines which which were articulated... 1,500 years after the birth of the church. Now, I don't agree with his argument, but I understand his point, right? We're here, to, we're here to explain the Scriptures. We need to teach the Scriptures, not a system, even if we agree with that system. We need to understand, then, this passage that Paul is, has penned here in the context of the letter and in its historical context. You see, Paul wrote this letter to encourage the Ephesians in their participation in the spread of the gospel and in the planting and strengthening of churches throughout the world at the time. The location, as we've gone over before, but it will, we'll say it again, the location of Ephesus was strategic. It it, it it was a location that connected the church in the east, such as Jerusalem, Lystra, and Derby, to the churches in the west, such as Corinth, Philippi, and Thessalonica. Now, Brethren, I want you to understand the significance of this. The significance of, of the fact that the church at Ephesus was a hub around which all the churches were It was centered between all the other churches. This means that this church, the church at Ephesus, is at the center of demonic attack. This demonic attack on the spread of the gospel and, and on the planting of these churches demonic realm, I want you to understand, the demonic realm knew that if they took out Ephesus, they severely hurt the efforts to plant and strengthen other churches. That's how important Ephesus was. You see, Paul, I mean, this is underscored by the fact that Paul actually pastored the church at Ephesus for three years himself. And and after leaving, he left Timothy, Timothy there for around 18 months. And he told Timothy that he wanted him to fight against the influence of false teachers and to continue to establish the church as the pillar and support of the truth. That's 1 Timothy 3:15. I want you to understand that that the church at Ephesus was in the at the epicenter of this attack, this demonic attack against the gospel. It was real. It wasn't it's not made up. Later we know that the Apostle John even pastored this church. I mean, again, underscoring the importance of Ephesus and why I believe that this letter actually is not a general letter, that I believe this letter really is written specifically to the church at Ephesus. In Acts 20, on it, Paul had actually visited the, the Ephesian elders uh, on his way back to Jerusalem, and he said this in verse 28, Acts twenty twenty eight: Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He says this in verse 29. I want to draw your attention to this. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Then he says in verse 31, Therefore, be on the alert. See, I believe that Paul wrote the letter... Of Ephesians for the purpose of strengthening this church and to remind them of the power of the gospel unto salvation. Now, I believe this second reason gives us a clue as to why he pens the words of Ephesians 2 8 through 10. I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 for just a moment. I'm going to show you, I'm going to give you a connection here. that I think is profound. First, First Thessalonians chapter 1, look in verse 5. Paul writes, Paul writes, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Now, stopping right there, I want you to note, that in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were imprisoned and beaten in Philippi, and when Paul commanded an evil spirit to depart from a fortune-telling girl who had brought much profit to her masters. See, her masters became very angry that Paul had driven out this demonic spirit and brought Paul and Silas before the magistrate and ordered them to be beaten with rods and imprisoned. Now, I would submit to you that that... More than her masters or her earthly, her earthly masters were angry. The demonic realm was actually very angry because Paul was preaching the gospel. After their release, then, Paul and Silas traveled from Philippi to Thessalonica and began to preach the gospel there with boldness. And they did so even though they were opposed there as well. Now think about this for a second. They had been beaten in Philippi for preaching the gospel. That's why they were beaten, is for ultimately preaching the gospel, and they were jailed there, and then they were released, right? And then they went to Thessalonica, and you know what they did? They preached the gospel with boldness. Preached it with boldness. You see, beloved, the kingdom of darkness, by the way, they were opposed in Thessalonica as well. Beloved, the kingdom of darkness will not stand aside and let us preach the gospel of Jesus Christ unopposed. It won't happen. The demonic realm will not let us preach the gospel unchallenged. Paul knew that the gospel would always be opposed by the forces of darkness. Now, you may be saying to me, and I, and I, I can understand if you are, you may be saying to me, aren't you overdoing this demonic stuff a little bit? I don't believe so, beloved. I don't believe so. Just read the ending of this letter to see why I think that that's what Paul has in mind. In Ephesians 6.10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord. That again, Ephesians. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You mean Paul to tell me that... that the ones who beat you with rods? You mean to tell me that your struggle is not against them? I mean, in my, the way I'm looking at it, if I was beaten, that's what my struggle would be against. But he's saying, no, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers and against the forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our struggle is against those spiritual forces of wickedness. We are, beloved, in a supernatural battle for the souls of men and women. Therefore, there is no greater encouragement than to know that the results of the gospel are also supernatural. Right? I mean, we're, we're in this battle, whether you know it or not, we're in this battle that's arrayed against us. And so, if, so what greater encouragement is than to know that, <coughs> that we're in this supernatural battle, but we have supernatural weapons. Well, we have a supernatural weapon. The one that matters. You see, God is the one who makes the dead sinner alive in Christ. He does so because He does so because the, the gospel doesn't come in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. That's what he says in First Thessalonians 1 5. And with this knowledge, then we can preach the gospel with full conviction. If you look at 1 Thessalonians one nine. he says this, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned, he's speaking, this is Paul speaking to the Thessalonians, he says, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. See, this is, beloved, this is actually one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. If I had a life verse, this would be it. It proves that the power of the gospel, it it proves the power of the gospel, and it demonstrates, it demonstrates, now this is the connection I want you to make, it demonstrates why the church at Ephesus can have full confidence in the power of the gospel. You see, Paul says that this idol-worshipping people, this idol-worshipping pagan people in Thessalonica, they turn from their idols to serve a living and true God their their conversion was so overwhelming it was so overwhelming that Paul says their faith toward God speaks for itself he didn't even have to mention it their ongoing faith in God is all the proof that Paul needed that his ministry for the gospel in the gospel was effective he says that so effective that the word of the Lord has sounded forth from that place to all of Macedonia and even beyond. And it's the even beyond that I want you to focus on because you can count on the fact that Paul and the other missionaries brought the, these stories back to Ephesus to share with them what had happened in Thessalonica and in the other churches. And Acts. Twenty, we already saw, after going through the churches in the West on his third missionary journey, he went through Miletus on his way to Jerusalem and he called those elders to himself. Now Luke records what we saw, Uh, we saw what Paul said to them, but you can be assured that he encouraged them with the report of how all those churches were doing. You see, all these churches continued to serve the Lord against all odds. I mean, you're not talking about a church that has, like us in Gainesville, I mean, one of you guys, I, I think it was, Uh, Joseph who's visiting us today said today I mean in Gainesville you can turn everywhere you turn you see a church you know we have a ton of support around here in terms of churches but I mean there wasn't a whole lot of support for the church at Thessalonica I mean when these people turned to the Lord against their culture they really turned to the Lord and and they had nothing other than themselves to depend upon in God ultimately they were serving the Lord with against all odds again This testifies to the power of the gospel. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 1. He says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. I believe that this could be better understood as saying that their coming and sharing the gospel didn't become empty, didn't come to vanity. In other words, the greatest proof of the gospel is that people not only believe the gospel, not only turn to Christ, but they... And they, they experience true, profound change, and it continues to bear fruit long after their con- conversion. Long after their conversion. So Paul says, look, the, the, the proof of the strength of my ministry, the success of my ministry, has everything to do with you, has everything to do with the fact that they are still serving Christ that you are still serving Christ and I, and if he takes that message back to Ephesus he can say look the gospel is what saves this is the proof above I we shouldn't make light we shouldn't make light of, of the gospel's power to save souls even right here in Gainesville. I ask you to consider how effective do you think the church has been here in Gainesville. In some ways, all we do is herd the sheep around from church to church, but we are not seeing necessarily many new converts, right? Look, we ought to be boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is profoundly powerful to save. Bre- Brethren, I'm not here to shame you for not sharing the gospel. I, I I, don't want to do that. I want you to be truly excited and understand the power of the gospel so that you can n- not help but to share it. And if you truly understand the sweetness of it, if you have truly experienced the sweetness of the gospel, you will desire to share it, right? Charles Spurgeon says this, I will not believe that thou hast tasted the honey of the gospel if thou can eat it all to thyself. End quote. I talked to a fellow pastor this week and he lamented that his main regret in ministry is that he was never able, has never been able to mobilize his church to take the gospel to a lost and dying world. Think about that. He's been in, he's been in ministry for 50 years. And he said his, regret, his main regret is that he has never been able to mobilize his church to take the gospel to a lost and dying world. It's just been that endless revolving door of sheep that's come in and out of his church. I, I, I want to tell you, I encouraged him that the harvest will be plentiful. Right? That if he's been faithful, and I know he has, if he's been faithful to teach the saints that eventually the Lord will bless that work. We, are, we may not be blessed to see the fruit of those labors in our lifetime, right? Sometimes we are, sometimes we're not. But we can rest assured in the power of the gospel and that He will use our labors. The one who faithfully prepared us will use us, right, for His glory. Beloved, my prayer is that we would see many people turn to Christ through the power of the gospel. But, we have, but the question remains, and I want to answer this question, how do we have confidence in the gospel's power to save I believe again that's Paul's point here let's look at this that that brings us let's look at closely at the text so turn back to Ephesians 28 I think we can be confident because our faith has a supernatural origin Paul writes for by grace you've been saved through faith now this, Phrase, for by grace you have been saved, is a repeat of what he said in verse five. I, I think what's happening here is that Paul just he put it in verse five, and now he's gonna more fully explain it. You see, he's gonna he's gonna fully explain what he's already brought up in grief, in brief that is. Now what we found is grace is the instrument or the means of our salvation. Only on the basis of grace are people delivered from their, the desperate situation of their sinful lives, the, the fact that they're dead and their transgressions and sins, which he described in verses 1-3. through 3. We know then that grace is God's unmerited and undeserved favor toward sinners. You see, he's, he's made us alive in Christ. We Sinners and dead people can't make themselves alive. Now the, the gift of grace has two facets. See, God's grace saves us through the sacrificial death of Christ, and God's grace gives us the ability to live acceptably before Him. So we must understand then, and we've we we looked at it in verses one through three. We must understand the desperate situation of the unregenerate of those who were unregenerate, which by the way, according to Paul, included all of us. So we need to understand that so that we would understand our need for grace, our need for the favor that God gives us. Now in verse four, or verse five that is, in Ephesians chapter two verse five, he said, "For by grace you've, or by grace you've been saved." We saw there that, that Paul used what we call the Greek perfect tense to describe God's work of salvation. You see, as you may recall, if you remember that sermon, as you may recall, he uses this tense to show that God has not only saved us, but that He keeps us saved. This tense, again, grammatically, denotes something that happened in the past, which has abiding results up until the time that the, the, the words were written. In other words, in other words, Paul knew that if someone had been saved by the grace of God, they continue to be saved. Now, this parallels, I think, our discussion about... The Thessalonians, You see, he said his coming to them did not become vain. It didn't come to emptiness. He had confidence in his ministry to, to them. He had confidence in the power of the gospel, not only to save, but he had confidence that they would continue to be saved by God's grace. In other words, if you are truly saved by the grace of God, you have been saved by a grace that has a supernatural origin. That grace is from God. It is from God, so you can trust that He will keep you till the end, because He is sovereign over salvation. Now, Paul goes on to say that this this grace is appropriated to us through faith. Now, at this point, Paul adds that we're saved by grace through faith. We're called upon to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation, then, has always been a matter of belief in God's promises. In order to see this, you can you turn to Genesis chapter 12. We'll see this clearly in the life of Abraham. Well, I hope I can get you to see it clearly in the life of Abraham. In 12 verse one, it says this in Genesis 12:1Now the Lord said to Abram, "Go forth from your company or country that is, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So, so we see that God promised Abram, Abram or Yahweh promised Abram, that He would make him a great nation, and that He would that he would make his name great, and that he would be a blessing to the, to the nations. Now, what I want you to understand is, is, there was nothing special about Abram. As far as I can tell, he wasn't looking for God to make him these promises. It was all, God do, all of God's doing. You see, Abram was a sinner that was doing his own thing. And God came and said, I'm going to do all this for you. And I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to bless you. And Abram believed God, and he obeyed his instructions. Look at verse 4. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now turn to Genesis 15. In Genesis 15:1 it says... After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Again here, we see that Yahweh has promised Abram to protect him and to reward him greatly. However, however, there's a but here. There's one major problem with God's promise, at least from Abram's perspective. Look at verse 2. Abram said, Oh Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? So he's made, he's promised that he's gonna make give him all these descendants, but he doesn't even have one descendant. He doesn't have one. So what does Abram do? What does Abram do? He's a you see, Abram is a man of weaknesses like you and me. So he offers God a solution. You know, I mean God doesn't have it under control so he offers God a solution he helps he wants to help God fulfill his promises it's noble right we actually do this all the time right we we say things like you know Lord this doesn't make sense we don't have the money we don't have the manpower we don't have the fill in the blank it's obvious that you need our help you need to be to do a b or c right so I'm going to go help you so that so that you can fulfill your promises. That's what Abram's doing, right? <coughs> so Abram, look, at, look back at verse, verse verse, 2, chapter 15, verse 2. O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of, of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Then, behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, and no one will come... and But one, that is, but one who will come from your body, he shall be your heir. God says, I don't need your help. You may be 75 plus years old, but I don't need your help. I got this. I got this. Except, here's here's what's funny. You know how people say, I got this? And then you realize they don't? (laughs) That's not how it is with God, right? When God says, I got this, He means it. He said, just trust me and watch what my power can do through a man who simply trusts me with everything. I want you to recognize, beloved, nothing has changed, right? I mean, we still serve the same God. He's still the same God on the throne. He still doesn't need our help. He still can accomplish amazing things. He can accomplish exactly the type of amazing things that we see here. We still serve a sovereign God who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, according to Paul in Ephesians 3.21. I hope you recognize how powerful this is. I hope you see the connection to the church at Ephesus and their strategic position in advancing the gospel to to those churches that, in, in those pagan lands that needed to hear the word of God. In other words, Paul is clearly encouraging him to trust God and trust the gospel to do its work. Now look at Genesis 15:6. This is the point with Abram. I didn't just go over here for no reason. In 156 it says this then Abram then he believed in the Lord. Abram believed. Abram believed he believed his promise. he believed that, that he was going to bring him an heir that one from his own body, His own aged body was going to come uh, to to be his heir. And he reckoned it to him as righteousness. You see, there it is. Abram believed God. Abram had faith in God's promises. And God saved him. He reckoned it to him as righteousness. Beloved, God saves us when we believe His promises. He saves us when we believe the gospel, when we believe that Christ died for our sins and that God raised him from the dead. Abram believed God and God saved him. In Romans 4, the apostle Paul picks up on this truth when he says this about Abraham, that is, now Abraham's faith. In Romans 4, it says, In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so your descendants shall be. But Paul goes on to say in 4.22, in 4.21, he was fully assured of what God had promised. He was fully assured of what God had promised, and he was able also to perform. Therefore, it it was also credited to him as righteousness. He had assurance of faith. You see, salvation, beloved, has always been about belief. Do you truly believe God's promises, even though you can't see Him? Do you truly trust in God's provision of salvation? Brethren, beloved, the cross is foolishness to the world. Let me just be blunt. They think it's stupid to believe in a crucified Savior. Paul says as much in verse in, in 1 Corinthians 1:18 for the word of, a, of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those us to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Friends, the question is, is the cross foolishness to you? If it's foolishness, then you're not saved. you don't believe. or do you believe that the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Again, notice that it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who what? Who believes. It's another way of saying that we are saved by grace through faith. Paul goes on to say that that this is a gift of God. Clearly, clearly it's, Grace is the gift of God. We, we've actually defined grace as, an unmerited, as unmerited favor or an unmerited gift of God. Therefore, what we have to understand is if Paul were only talking about the grace, his statement would be redundant. He's already said that's what grace means. As a matter of fact, the word translated grace could also be translated gift. I think that Paul wants his readers to understand that faith itself is the gift of God. Faith or belief is 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 presented actually, funny enough, as as it were, is presented other places in the New Testament as a gift. Look at, or you don't have to look there. Just listen in Second Peter one one, it says this: Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the true of the same kind as ours, who have received it. There's a there's a reception. In order for there to be a reception, there has to be a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift of God. In Philippians one twenty nine, it says this, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. But notice it says, been granted. Actually, if you translate that literally, it's grace gifted. You have been grace gifted to not only believe, to have faith, but also to suffer. Therefore, we not only see that grace is defined as unmerited favor or a gift of God, faith is also a gift of God. Therefore, we can have assurance of faith when our faith has a supernatural origin. It's not of us. That's why, that's why there's assurance, because we know that that faith is not of us. We know that if it were up to us, we wouldn't believe. There's no other there's no earthly explanation for why Abraham would get up and leave everything he knew, except that God chose him and gave him the faith to believe. That's that's the only biblical explanation that there is. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, I mean, we see Abraham struggles. Even as he as he was told to leave, he went and he did some, you know, he lied in Egypt and about his about Sarah, his wife, and said that that he was that she was his sister and didn't tell the the Pharaoh that he was the, also the wife, and he just all some, some things that show a lack of faith on Abraham's part. But if we're honest with, our, with ourselves, we all have a struggle to believe, right? All of us waver in our faith at times. Uh, this is graphically depicted by the father of the demon-possessed boy in Mark 9. I don't know if you're familiar with this passage, but he says, uh, the, this demon had been in this boy from childhood, and this, guy, this man, this father, begged Jesus for, this, for, for him to throw this demon out, or to cast this demon out. He says this, If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said, If you can, don't you know who I am, right? All things are possible to him who believes. And in, in verse 924, he says this, Immediately the father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. Think about that. I do believe. Help my unbelief, right? This man recognized the fragility of his belief. And he recognized the fact that we need God to give us the ability to truly believe. Have you ever wondered how you would handle handle persecution? Would you trust in God and never waver to the end or would you fall away? It's only natural to doubt whether you would stand up under the persecution, especially as you consider your weaknesses, right? But God will give you the faith to believe because all things are possible if we truly believe. Again, it's because the faith has a supernatural origin. It's not of us. I don't believe in what I believe because I've conjured up this belief. I believe what I believe because God has caused me to believe. Paul goes on to say it's not, a result of, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. If we ever doubt that salvation is all of God, every bit of it, Paul doubles down and says that salvation is not a result of works. There is no amount of works that you can do to save yourself. You can't be good enough. You cannot do enough good deeds to impress a holy God. It it won't work. His standard is perfection. His standard is righteousness. And we are unrighteous and we can't make ourselves righteous. You see that's what sets Christianity apart from all other religions and including versions of what I'll call counterfeit Christianity which try to mix works into the gospel. This is what I would call Satan's gospel, which always includes good works as part of the equation. That we can somehow do something to help. Uh, we need, like Abram, when he said, "You know, Lord, uh, there's this other guy over here that can be that can be our, I mean, the the heir." We're always trying to do something to help. God doesn't need our help. He needs us to believe and trust in Him. Sometimes. The counterfeit gospel can look close to the real thing, as A.W. Pink says. As Christ has a gospel, Satan has a gospel too. The latter being a clever counterfeit of the former. So closely does the gospel of Satan resemble that it parades and parades. Let me say this again. So closely does the gospel of Satan resemble that which it parades. Multitudes of the unsaved are deceived by it. Yeah, unquote. Get that out in a minute. You see, end quote, that is. You see, the gospel, the, the counterfeit gospel, tries to mix works into what we do. But what God is wanting us to do is completely yield and believe in Him. Believe that what He has done is good enough. The true gospel is the pure gospel of grace through faith. There is no admixture of works. It is all the gift of God, so that no man may boast. As F.F. Bruce puts it, Paul's claim was that the message he preached was the authentic gospel of Christ. It is this, two things on which Paul preeminently insisted that salvation was provided by God's grace and that faith was the means by which men appropriated it. End quote. Beloved, there won't let me say it this way. There won't be anyone standing before the throne who will say that they were there for any other reason than God saved him by His grace through faith. There won't be anybody able to say, well, you know, I did this and I did that, and you know, I was I was helpful over here and they. I didn't speak badly to my mother. There won't be any stories like that. All the stories around the throne are going to be all that God has done to save them. And it, there won't be any stories of, of good works. Just consider John Bradford. He lived in during the times of public hangings, and when he would see somebody go out to be hanged, tears would literally come to his eyes and when others ask him why, why was he why was he upset? He said this: "There goes John Bradford, but for the grace of God." That's a man who understands, right? That's a man who understands that. But for the grace of God, that there go he, right? He didn't do anything to deserve that. That's his point. He deserved that hanging just as much as the man going to the gallows. He had a settled understanding that he did nothing to earn salvation. You've done nothing to earn it. It is the gift of God. In other words, say it a different way. Again, faith, your faith has a supernatural origin. And that supernatural origin gives us confidence that God can not only transfer us, has not only transferred us from the realm of darkness, He can take the most rotten of sinners and He can make them a saint. Paul said himself, I was the foremost of all sinners. He actually was dragging Christians out and persecuting them. And yet God saved him for his own purposes. For God's purposes, that is. Let's look at the second reason we can be confident in the gospel's effectiveness. This goes quickly. Our works are supernaturally produced. Our works are supernaturally produced. Not only is our faith supernatural, but our works are supernatural. Paul says in verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see, beloved, Paul says clearly we are His workmanship. We were created by God physically. We are His masterpiece from start to finish. He has not only physically created you and me in His image, but He has also, if you are a Christian, spiritually recreated you. And any works that you might do can only be attributed, that is, good works that you might do, can only be attributed to this spiritual recreation. Everything that you have ever done is wholly dependent upon the One who has created you, the One who sustains you, and the One who has recreated you. You see, you can't take any credit for what God has done. Anything that we attribute to ourselves then becomes an affront to the grace of God. Paul goes on to say "He was created; that we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. You see, we are not saved by good works. We are created for good works. In other words, your works then are supernaturally produced. You should be able to see then The fingerprints of God on your works because they are produced through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Oh, and by the way, your neighbor who is also if that your neighbor is saved, you should be able to see the fingerprints of God on his good works or her good works because every work that we do in Christ bears the seal of the Holy Spirit. This ties directly into Romans twelve. He's given us gifts that differ according to the grace that we've been given. Each of us are to exercise them accordingly. So we are to exercise our gifts according to the grace He's given us. And so, so we do that, as Paul says, we do it uh, according to the proportion of our faith, if service and is serving. So if we serve, we serve with all our heart. If we teach, we do, we, we do it in our teaching. If we exhort, in our exhortation. If we give, we give with liberality. If we lead, we lead with diligence. If we show mercy, we do it with cheerfulness. Those works that we do in the Spirit bear the marks of of God, bear the the seal of the Holy Spirit because it is His gifts that we've been given. And Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2.10, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see, ultimately, God has, has prepared every work that we'll ever do as a Christian. It's both comforting and scary at the same time, right? Just last night I was talking to one of our young folks who said who quoted and said I, he didn't have much of a testimony but in truth in truth he has an amazing testimony which has been written in the mind of God who will bring every detail to pass right I mean every detail has already been written and he, he'll walk in the works that God has given him. And if you think about it, this really should bring us great confidence because we'll do exactly the works God has given us to do. So you shouldn't be fearful of sharing the gospel with your coworker or with your friend or with the person sitting next to you in, a, in the airport. You shouldn't be fearful when God calls you to do whatever He calls you to do, whether it's something like planting a church or whether it's something like being a missionary, whatever it is, you shouldn't be fearful because He's the one doing the work through you. (coughs) You shouldn't be fearful when your needs haven't been met. Because God knows your every need. He'll give you exactly what you need to do, what you need to do. (coughs) Beloved, you can be confident in the gospel's effectiveness because it has a supernatural origin. You can be confident in It's effectiveness because it's Christ doing the works through you. Whether that's to raise your kids to serve the Lord, or whether whether you're sent to take the gospel to a remote tribe in Africa, or whether it's to be a part of a struggling little church plant here in Gainesville. God will give you everything you need. He'll give you everything you need. You can be confident because your works are supernaturally produced. Paul's point, His Point: your faith has a supernatural origin and your works have a su- are supernaturally produced. That's the assurance that we can have. That's the assurance that we have. It's really amazing. It's really amazing. As we overcome obstacles, as we overcome difficulties, as we overcome great trials, we can see God's faith work our God the faith our faith working in us as God produces it as James says as God grows us so that we would be complete lacking in nothing right well i think i've gone far enough so i right now this is called crashing the plane not landing the plane but let me let me pray for Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Praise you that when we think about this church at Ephesus and how you use them so mightily. You use them, Lord, to strengthen and... You use them to strengthen other churches and you use them to strengthen spread the gospel throughout that known world, ultimately turning the entire world upside down, changing the entire direction of the world, starting at the cross. Lord, I I can only imagine what those people thought as they gathered together, maybe in a group not unlike ours in some way, that They looked at the world and thought, there's no way we can make a difference. We're too insignificant. We're too weak. Yet, Lord, in your power and in the power of the gospel, you used them to turn the world upside down. You used them to strengthen churches which went then and planted other churches and strengthened other churches. And that's is handed down even to the day where we see a small church plant here in Gainesville. Lord, we thank you, and praise you. That we can have confidence, we can have assurance of faith personally, assured before you, as we see that belief supernaturally wrought within us. We can be confident as we see the works that you have us do, as we look back on our lives and we see how You've kept us and how You've given us uh, uh, the path that we've walked. And we can see those little details that You've worked out in our lives. And we see what You've done. We can have great confidence that this, this faith is truly of You. Oh, Lord, I know that unbelievers would hear this and scoff and say well, how do you know you're not conjuring this up within yourself? Lord, I, I'm assured because I see and understand that you are moving and you're using me to good do good works, to, to make a difference in this world. Not a difference of just changing things politically, but a difference in people's lives, seeing people come to know you and to follow you. Father, as a church, I pray that we would see that more and more. That we would go out and we would proclaim, we would boldly proclaim the gospel, that we would be confident that the gospel truly is the power of God unto salvation. Lord, I know that if we truly believe that, that we would not be able to keep that light under a basket. That we would shine forth, Lord, in this world. I pray, Lord, that we would do just that. I pray these things in... In the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.